This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, as a new biography of Keir Starmer reveals, his dad was a toolmaker and he grew up in a pebble-dash semi, we ask, can you have too much backstory? We'll speak to not one, not two, not three, but four political biographers to see what the upbringing of a politician makes to their prospects of being Prime Minister. We'll also bring you a sneak preview of today's How to Win an Election with Peter Mandelson, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie. Plus, Joe Lysett takes on sewage in a new Channel 4 documentary. He tells me why he's wading through the brown stuff and how does his polling match up to Keir Stummer and Rishi Sunak. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can join me for Politics About the Boring Bits on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics About the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Now, as we always like to, on the Tuesday episode of Politics Out the Boring Bits, we bring you a little sneak preview of today's How to Win an Election. It's Peter Manson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein today talking about how you win in a recession. Can you? In a very, very good book called Why Message Matters by Lynn Vavrek, the political scientist, she uh, essentially shows the strong relationship in US elections, this is, but I think the same occurs here, uh, between uh, economic performance in the last six to nine months before an election and expected performance in the, in the three to six months after the election in terms of people's uh, well, welfare, uh, their, their, their disposable income, and that, that the relationship of that to voting. And then she asked the question, can you actually buck that? You know, if, you, if you're the candidate uh, that is running for the opposition party and the economy is going very well, or you're uh, the party that is running with the, um, the, in the government and the economy is not going very well, are you doomed? And she argues, no, you're not completely doomed, um, but it's very difficult. That's the first point. Um, but then she says, can you do anything about it? Yes, you can select an issue which you are able to campaign on, but your opposition, uh, the, the other party, cannot. And you can try to elevate that into the issue for the election. I mean, it, it's perhaps what they're doing is trying to just dump the economy as an issue, as an election issue. Uh, I think it's extremely hard to do that for all the reasons that Danny uh, has explained. But that's what perhaps why they are turning to small boats, Rwanda, immigration. But the problem with them 
for immigration is that they are stoking up a great deal of sentiment and anger amongst conservative supporters, as well as some others, but many, many conservative supporters uh, who, angry and disappointed at the government's performance over immigration, are now turning to Reform UK. So what we've seen over the last few months as, as, we've, as they've banged the drum over immigration uh, without providing solutions uh, to it is that support for Reform UK has grown. And that's what we saw in uh, Wellingborough. And I think we'll see it in others. And the, the, the Reform UK, from a Conservative point of view, are in danger of taking off if Farage mm. uh, joins their campaign. If he hits, hits the campaign trail between now and the election, he will put booster rockets under Reform UK and then I think the Conservatives will, will indeed be well and truly uh, sunk. So I don't think going on about immigration and boats and whatever is the answer to their problem. But he's only got so many things he could keep talking about. Uh, Paul, I was going. I thought I'd look at the polling on this just to see how badly uh, they're doing. Actually, it, in terms of the, how the public think the government's handling the economy, I mean it, it's low. But the number of people saying they're handling it well is going up. The number of people saying it's ha- uh, handling it badly is coming down. And if you look at which government do you, would be better at managing the economy. The Conservatives are on 20, under Rishi Sunak are on 24%. Labour on 27 neither on 28 The Labour and the Conservatives are basically neck and neck on this. It's not like Labour are, are winning on the economy either. It doesn't feel like But maybe that doesn't matter if you're not the government. They're not massively ahead, but they are slightly ahead. Um, and crucially, they're ahead on everything else. And if the Labour Party is ahead on the economy... The Labour Party sort of takes for granted that it's ahead on whether they do public services well. And they're also ahead on uh, immigration in, in, by some measures. And again, partly because of the reason that Peter was just explaining, that the more the Conservatives talk up how tough they are on immigration whilst continuing to fail, the more they actually kind of push votes away from themselves and and they push up the salience without dealing with their competence problem and actually they, they, they get worse ratings on that. So they're just, there isn't, Another issue, as Danny suggests, that the Conservative Party can 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 actually pick on that works for the centre. It's that you know, it's like in chess, right? You're in check, and so you have to you have to move. Um, but the problem is that every move actually puts them into a worse situation uh, because they're trying to move to the right to pick up the anti woke vote to stop reform taking them, but. All they're doing is making the problem worse. And you can listen to the full episode of How to Win an Election wherever you've listened to this. But not before you've listened to Joe Lysett. He's previously taken on councils, breweries, food delivery firms, banks, oil companies, Hugo Boss and David Beckham. Now, Joe Lysett is talking sewage. In a new documentary on Channel 4, Joe Lysett versus Sewage, the comedian wades into the nation's rivers and ends up feeling a bit sick. There's something nasty floating in Britain's water. Oh, that stinks. Oh, my God. And Joe Lysett's on a mission to flush it out. They're going in the water. You know what's in there, right? I don't go and swim in the sea anymore. Why would I want to go and swallow what I got rid of three hours ago? Something horrible has happened here. Why not? Bit of fun, isn't it? Um... Because when I did the research on it, I say I did the research, when a team of people did the research and handed it to me while I was sipping Chateau Neuf de Pap, I was furious about it. It's really shocking when you actually see the scale and the level of poor investment and how long it's been uh, going on for, how complicated it all is, and how many people are getting sick every year from swimming in basically raw sewage when they think they're just going for a dip in our 
in our seas and rivers, uh, I start to get really angry. And when I get angry, that generally makes for good television. And the thing about sewage, because sometimes if there's like a, a scandal that people are cross about, the more you dig into it, the more you work out, oh, hang on, there is this thing and there's another thing and it's complicated. But this is just a straightforward thing of in 2024, we are routinely pumping who into rivers and seas where people might want to go swimming. Exactly, yes. And they refer to it as a spill. But a spill sounds like, oh, I've spilt a glass of Chateauneuf de Pap. Uh, whereas actually a spill in their terms is actually often leaking sewage for hours and hours and hours a day. Sometimes it's just like a spill can go on for hundreds of hours. So it's 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 full leaks. The volume is hard to quantify, but there's basically, you know, massive amounts of raw sewage going into our rivers and seas pretty much every day. If you look at the map of where is safe to swim around the UK, it's basically not anywhere. You know, it's extraordinary how we've got to this position where we're an island and we can't swim in our seas. Were you previously someone who went in the sea? Have you stopped going in the sea as a result of doing this? Matt, I live in Birmingham. I couldn't be further, <laughs> couldn't be further from the sea. But well, I do, yeah. I like to go in the sea. I like cold water swimming, and I like to go in the sw- in the sea when I can. When I'm, you know, when I'm up the coast. But these days, I I just wouldn't. You know, I, I think it's it is it's dangerous to 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 go in a lot of the waters around the UK. And you hear of people getting illnesses that are permanent. It's not like oh, I get a bit sick and then I get over it. Some people get inner ear infections, which change their lives forever it's not something that is quick to get over a lot of the time this can be life-changing for people so you take this issue and obviously you know there's an issue which which, which people have been banging about the times that a campaign for the last year on on rivers and all that mm. so you, you you discover that this is an issue you get cross about it how do you joe lysit it up yes well, we always get with my shows, we always have a really strong journalistic team. So we have a really good um, journalistic team on this, as we always do. And so we try and merge their journalism, essentially, with comedy and try and make it light and entertaining and not too newsy, but with strong journalistic background. And we've got um, a whistleblower from one of the main water companies who we speak to in the programme who gives us some really shocking revelations about the kind of culture at these companies and how how bonuses are paid out to the executives there and how, in some cases, according to the whistleblower, uh, there are incentives to not report spillages and leakages at... Is leakages a word? I'm going to go with it. Leakers, leaks, leaks. I mean, it's no more euphemistic than spillages. When, like yes. you said, they are literally deliberately turning the taps on. Yes, yeah. Leaks sounds like the vegetable to me. So leakages. that um, You know, there's an incentive to not because of bonuses are linked in some cases to the reporting or not reporting of these leaks. And by leak, I don't mean the vegetable. So, yeah, uh, we, we've got a lot of, I think, really shocking revelations in the programme. And then obviously, because there's loads of poo stuff, I just do a lot of scatological humour around. <laughs> and, that's, and that's it. And we're, you know, hoping for another BAFTA. What are the stats that, that leapt out to me? Because it's quite difficult to quantify this. Is that if you took all of the sewage overflows, overflows, leakages, spillages that happened in 2022, if it was all coming out of one pipe, it would take 200 years. I don't, I don't, this is the tricky thing is like, 
what's the width of the pipe and you know oh, that's what true speed is it coming out and this is the thing i tried to sort of quantify it in my head when we were doing the program and it's basically impossible because the data is kind of vague you know yeah, they, yeah, spilled, yeah. they spilled for so many hours but what does that actually mean and nobody really tells you because they don't want you to know essentially but i, I did a sort of back of a um an envelope bit of calculations and one spillage i worked out was about the volume of three titanics and that was one spillage at one stage. But it is really, really hard to kind of get an, a sense of it because it's deliberately, I think, probably uh, vague. In the documentary, you do some very Joe Lysett things. You you create stunts in the hope to go viral and, you know, wind people mm. up and aggravate them. And, all and you struggle a little bit to start with to get people sort of motivated by it. Do you think it's because we, do we just accept now, oh, nothing's worked, everything's broken, courses poo with the rivers but we can't do anything about it is it just a yeah a bit. i think so yeah i think there's a bit of that going on but also i think when anyone sees that i'm doing anything they sort of go oh what's he up to now you know i think that <laughs> I, think, I think i've been rumbled but well, i am really thrilled that at first it sort of didn't quite catch fire and then suddenly it did and we have had over twenty thousand emails to the water companies i think that's growing and you can still email the water company. We've made it very easy. If you go to turdcast.co.uk, all the information is there. And it's literally like you just click on your water company and you can send them an email. Um, the, essentially, we've got to keep maintaining the pressure on them. Keep the thing in the news. Keep the thing being talked about because the scale of the thing is a is a national national disgrace, you might say. So what is it? Because having motivated people, wound people up, what is it you want to happen what's the purpose of getting people to email to their or email their their water company yeah so the the there is a simple solution to this which is we need investment in our sewage network on a massive scale and that sounds sounds simple it's like a one sentence solution but it there are ways of getting there and one thing that i'm pushing for is that the water companies stop paying dividends now our program uh, says that I can't remember exactly what year it was, but basically, on average, 11% of the money that goes from your bills to the water companies gets paid out as a dividend. So that means that if you're paying monthly bills, one whole month of your bills goes straight back out to a shareholder, a pension pot, whatever it is, a hedge fund, uh, to to pay the, those shareholders. Full disclosure, I am also a shareholder in Seven Trent because my dad bought me four shares in Seven Trent when I was a little baby. So um, <laughs> I get I, my last dividend payment was two pound fifty six. I am part of the problem, but I would I'm disinvesting. I don't want to be paid that money. I want that money to go back into the system to improve it. And I'm calling on other shareholders to pressure the water companies to not pay the dividends and fix the problem if it was a company that was fake essentially they're failing companies if it was any other failing company you wouldn't be expecting them to be paying dividends you'd expecting them to reinvest and to make sure that it becomes a successful profitable safe company and at this point i wouldn't call all of our waters pretty much being unsafe to swim in safe we had steve barkley the environment secretary was on times radio this morning and he was asked about your show and some of the revelations, particularly about you know, the, the Church of England has got investments in 
uh, the water companies as well, which I know you talked about. This is what he said. Uh, we do need to hold the water companies to account more strongly, and I'm absolutely determined to do that. You'll have seen, for example, my announcement last week in terms of bonuses for executives. Uh, there's a lot more to do. Uh, I do think, actually, if there is serious criminal wrongdoing in the industry, that does have a deterrent effect on investment, and it is something we should take seriously. But at the same time, we do want to secure investment because we recognise to clean up our rivers, to get the investment into our sewage treatment plants, that is going to take significant capital. We therefore need to ensure that investors are able to invest in those firms. But in doing so, we need to address the serious wrongdoing. And that's why, for example, in areas like water firms mocking their own homework, doing their own inspections, that is something I'm extremely keen to stamp out. So what do you think of that? Well, it's a start, isn't it? <laughs> a very small start. I do think, you know, they have made, they're obviously, you know, aware of it and they are making some changes and I don't want to discourage them from going further. So I think, well done. You've done a very good first attempt, Stephen. Have another go. Slightly better than Therese Coffee. I would, I think we could have, a, we could go a little bit further and I wish you all the best. This is very positive. I'm enjoying this. This, this is this is a, a new positive upbeat Joe Lysett. I want to ask you about the government more generally. Obviously, you famously were a big supporter of Liz Truss, but that didn't last very long. Yes. When Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss were on Laura Koonsberg's show, you said there was no point speaking to Rishi Sunak because he wasn't going to become prime minister. Yeah. Confirming your reputation as a political pundit. <laughs> um, <laughs> how... How is he doing? Has he turned out to be better than Liz Truss? It's very hard to quantify what better is, isn't it? Is it better to fall off a cliff or a bridge? Uh, <laughs> it's it's sort of it's hard to know, isn't it? I think it's it still feels like it's a mess, and it feels like they don't really know what they're doing, and that um, the sort of chaos behind the door of Number Ten. And I, I think the Rwanda policy and the kind of mess around all of that shows you that the the thing is on thin ice. So I think he presents well and he you know looks nice in a suit, but I think there probably are people in the country who might do a better job. Now, are you one of them? Because I've looked this up. Yeah. Or, or, I, could, you, I would be better at it drunk, I think. <laughs> Well, I've looked up your polling, Joe Lysett. I've been on YouGov and I've looked up your polling. Oh, no. On on net favourability, so all the people who are positive minus all the people who are negative. Yeah. Rishi Sunak is on minus 26. Yeah. Keir Starmer is on minus 12. Yeah. Joe Lysett is on plus 33. Yeah, but the thing with that is I've not got involved in politics particularly. And the minute <laughs> you get involved, everyone just, you just drop into the minuses. So I think that's... I think I would be, I would be very low minuses if I started to try and get involved in politics. We'd take low minuses. That's all right. That's a bit, that's an improvement. Yeah. No, no, like, like in, <laughs> high minuses then. High minuses. High minuses. <laughs> Some people will think, oh, you're just another lefty comedian telling everyone to vote Labour. Well, I'm not telling them to vote Labour because I'm not aligned to any political party. I'm not telling anyone to vote in any way, really. I sort of, um, I think people should vote. But it's up to them how they want to vote. So that has been one thing that I have found tricky is that I didn't want to be a political comedian. You know, I started out doing letters about parking fines and Which are very funny. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> another another plus from the you Um 
I, I, I'm constantly, but I'm constantly having to explain to people that does butter no parsnips. I say it all the time in meetings. Yeah, and I think it's basically your. I mean, I was aware of it as a phrase, but it's basically your fault because you had a you yeah, had a whole I, thing on it. You had a book for it. Yeah, but um, I, I won't be telling anyone how to vote because it's not my place to. But I do think it's uh, acceptable when you've got a government who have really consistently behaved badly to talk about that and to my, my business advisor just tried to come in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, it was, I think it was Rishi Sunak smashing through the door. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think... But presumably you'll carry on doing it if there is a change of government. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I don't think... I, I don't think you're going to fix all problems. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. There's, going to, there's still going to be things that I, I don't know. Maybe everyone, maybe Keir Starmer will win and he'll fix everything, and everyone will be happy. Then, then we can all quit. You will have nothing to do. I'll have nothing to talk about. You'll have nothing to talk about. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of it's part of the ecosystem, isn't it? Pays, <laughs> pays the mortgage. Lovely Joe lies it there. Right up next, the never-ending backstory. Do we need to know? Do we care about a politician's upbringing? 
David Cameron taking drugs while he was at Eton. Did you know Keir Starmer's father was a toolmaker? Uh, but if you didn't already, uh, you're going to know a lot more about the Labour leader soon. There's a new book out all about him. Keir Starmer, The Biography. Cracking title. Uh, it's by Tom Baldwin. It's out later this month, revealing more details of his humble upbringing in a pebble dash semi. But just how important are the backstories of our of our politicians? Is there any value in them? Well, to help us find out, I'm joined by a cracking panel of expert biographers. We'll hear from Sir Anthony Selden. He's known for many political biographies, including those of John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Theresa May, David Cameron and Boris Johnson, their time in number 10. We're also uh, joined by Linda McDougall, the author of Marcia Williams, The Life and Times of Baroness Falkender, uh, of course, was a key advisor to Harold Wilson. Hi, Linda. Hi. Uh, we've got Andrew Jimson, who's written two volumes of biography of Boris Johnson, the most recent called Boris Johnson, The Rise and Fall of a Troublemaker, at number 10. Hello, Andrew. Hello, hello. And Francis Elliott, former political editor of The Times, uh, now at The House magazine, and biographer of David Cameron. Cameron, practically a conservative. Now, Francis, let me start with you, because in a way, your biography of David Cameron is the most comparable to the the one of Keir Starmer, although you weren't a Conservative Party press officer before writing it. Um, uh, what's the value of the backstory of getting to know someone who's sort of on course for number 10, do you think, Francis? I think we're, in, we're always entitled to know the character of the person who has so much power over our lives. Uh, and it, it would be extraordinary if we, if we didn't know um, a little about their emotional make up their background, their conditioning, um, their journey into politics. So I'd say it's actually essential. And you did, I mean, the drugs, uh, the taking of drugs at Eton, that was not known about before you wrote about it in your book? No, uh, nor indeed the picture of him at the Bullingdon. Or, um, I, th I think he had done quite a good job until, um, <laughs> until you came our up. book with, with James Hanning <laughs> came out about just how just how privileged a background he'd had uh, in the uh, leafy folds of Berkshire. And uh, and the reaction to it when that book came out, because clearly you weren't doing it, you know, to explain Tom Baldwin uh, was a uh, previously a journalist at the Times. He then uh, was a spin doctor for Ed Miliband. He's been in and around the, the, the Labour machine. Clearly this is... He insists it's not an authorised biography, but he sat down with everyone involved and clearly, you know, he, he would rather there was a Labour government. Your, yours was more journalistic in that sense. So what was the reaction from David Cameron when your book came out? <laughs> I have somewhere a, a fairly nice note uh, from, from Cameron. <laughs> he said something to the effect of, I'm not sure my mother would quite recognise her son in this, which is uh, beautifully kind of barbed. But, um, <laughs> you know, Everly kind of nicely brought up. He, he did send me a note. We, we met. He kind of teased me that um, we'd missed a few of his girlfriends. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I think I think he was more angry when, um, when the subsequent kind of uh, updates came out. I think uh, the, 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 the revelation that he was, uh, would get a gold medal for chillaxing um, which I think came out just as he was uh, a G7 with Barack Obama. Uh, uh, he was fit to be tired, I'm told, although I think I didn't see him at that point. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember that only too well. Um, uh, Andrew Jimson, 
is there? I mean, the, the thing that strikes me is that Keir Starmer's, you know, this biography, clearly he's, he's cooperated with it. It's portraying him as his humble upbringing. And clearly he had a very tough relationship with his father and the, the house was in a mess and money was clearly tight and his, his mother was ill and so all, all of that and so on. And it's clearly designed to make him seem more normal, uh, a more empathetic individual. Um, Andrew, it strikes me with Boris Johnson, a more, uh, an even more extraordinary upbringing, really, than David Cameron's. It didn't make the blindest bit of difference to his popularity for such a long time. It was a very extraordinary upbringing, privileged but also precarious. Uh, his parents moved 32 times before they got divorced. His mother had a fearful nervous breakdown and was, was nine months in the Maudsley Hospital. Um, and at school, I, I got hold of his school reports and his housemaster... Um, said that Boris expected to be an exception to the system of obligation uh, that binds everyone else and thought it was very churlish that, uh, of, of the authorities not to allow him to get away with murder, really. Um, so the, the, he, he was formed very much by this, by this rather extraordinary childhood, yes. Um, I mean, ultimately, the interesting thing that strikes me, David Cameron, you know, David Cameron and Boris Johnson, coming from a, a background of privilege, went to Eton and Oxford and uh, and all of that, the Bullingdon Club and all of that, and yet they, they both won elections, Andrew. It doesn't seem to have, yes, to see, have held is, them back. This is, this is a point that chippy journalists like you always miss. It, membership of the Bullingdon Club was <laughs> it's by... It's a point by I've just made. By... I'm not being chippy. <laughs> Sorry, other journalists, other, um, other less <laughs> no, fair-minded no, journalists, <laughs> exactly. But the, the thing is, you had to be elected to the Bullingdon, and uh, the present foreign foreign minister of Poland was a member of the Bullingdon Club. They had a certain push. Some of these Buller people, um, including Cameron, Osborne, and um, Boris. Um, Linda McDougall, are you drawn to uh, this sort of biography, the sort of the politician not, on the not up? tiny bit actually I was just listening to all these mentions of the Bullingdon Club and thought well that should really help me with my knowledge of uh, British politicians. <laughs> I read Tom Baldwin's extract with enthusiasm at the weekend I, and I read it very carefully and just found it so utterly depressing. Uh, I, at least I suppose uh, uh, Marcia Williams, where I was writing the story of a woman we didn't know anything about who was dead and therefore uh, for the first time didn't have any possibility of suing me, I suppose. But I, I, I gasped when I read Tom Baldwin. It's not that it's not efficient and not compelling, but it just makes the leader of the Labour Party sound like the most boring, responsible uninspired politician that we've had around for years. If I were Rakia Starmer, I wouldn't want to be seen like that. I, I mean, of course he had a sad time with his family, but a little spark of humour or light, but there was none, and I was very disappointed by that. I think if you're going to write a political biography, then it's awfully useful if someone will read it and... Uh, I, I can imagine vast sort of swathes of people getting bored stiff before they got to chapter four. It, it, but, um, Francis, do you think it would have done him more good if someone more independent, more like yourself or, or Andrew or or, uh, or Linda, had, had, had done a sort of independent, spirited warts and all, rather than something that clearly... You know, with the possible exception of the uh, the revelation that Sue Gray likes citizens' assemblies, uh, that the Labour Party, the Labour machine, the spin doctors are obviously very happy with this. It's more press release than profile. I think 
Well, uh, you and I, I think, slightly disagree about the quality of this book. I mean, it's hard to say from the, you know, we've only had the extracts. I actually thought that they were kind of well-written, and I agree with the review of Patrick Maguire in The Times mm. about this, that, that, okay, there is a series of controlled explosions, right? We know what's going on here. In a sense, there are some there is some personal details that have been introduced to the public domain in a sympathetic way. And, uh, and Tom Baldwin has done that, you know, and he has kind of served his political leanings in doing that. So, so he's controlled the explosions in less sympathetic hands. They would be, and, and probably will be going forward, put in a much less sympathetic light, but he's got them out there. But I disagree with Linda. I thought it was really compelling uh, and helped me. I mean, look, we all know that, well, you know, you have to be fairly kind of like asleep at the wheel not to know that Starmer is not uh, a charismatic uh, crafts, you know, a, a thriller minute guy. Uh, uh, he's not Boris Johnson. But I, 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 having read those extracts, I felt I understood a little better uh, his character and his emotional incontinence and, and, and what might come from, uh, what might be responsible for that. Uh, and forgive a bit along the way but you know hey maybe i'm maybe you are softy anthony selton do you if if the poll suggests uh keir starmer ends up in number 10 uh do you relish the idea of uh, of starmer at 10 to add to your collection well it's always more fun matt writing about somebody who is a lot of fun <laughs> and even his best friends wouldn't probably say they uh, relish the prospect of spending three weeks on holiday with him <laughs> the south of France or wherever he goes um so Boris Johnson was a lot of fun to write about was but was an absolutely uh unbelievably unimaginably awful prime minister I mean he was a total disgrace and so there's a kind of you know is there an inverse relationship between funness and effectiveness in office um and so you know quite frankly after a series of pretty ineffectual or highly ineffectual prime ministers it's going to be good to write about somebody who actually makes the weather. And my goodness, Britain needs a prime minister who knows where the levers are and how to bring about change. Linda, when it comes to, to political biographies, I mean, or biographies in general, I think this is true, but I, I read quite a lot of uh, autobiographies, you know, particularly like, you know, not so much politicians, but, you know, comedians or, uh, well, a whole range of people. Quite often, you do skip the sort of the life and times and what their grandfather did and all that. You want to get to the good stuff. And actually, in, in the in the story of uh, of Keir Starmer, we haven't got to the good stuff yet, have we? Well, I don't know because I uh, it hasn't been published in. Oh no, I mean, as in he hasn't got he hasn't got to Downing Street yet. In terms of like you know the Marcia Williams stuff, it gets good when she's you know advising Howard Wilson and they're getting into government and all of that. That's that's when if you're if you're into politics, you want to get to the, the Downing Street bit, don't you? Well, I, I'm sure that uh, we obviously want to know about what's going to happen if Keir Starmer becomes prime minister. Yes. But uh, I just found it incredibly sort of, of course, it was well written, but it was it was uninspiring and it didn't make me want to rush out and uh, <laughs> support him and wave a flag for Labour, you know. And uh, I, I could do with that. Uh, I could do with some politicians who gave me hope on either side of the, or anywhere in the House of Commons, quite frankly. I find it also depressing. And uh, 
I, I don't want to be a part of a group of biographers who writes stuff that people don't really want to know too much about. I mean, my aim with Marcia was there are so few women uh, written about, so good or bad. My aim was uh, just to tell the, tell a story and really to try and find someone who would actually read it because uh, I know you all read and perhaps I do sometimes all these biographies of politicians, but it would be so much more exciting if one could get some young people. Uh, dare I suggest if it had been a racy read about Keir Starmer, it could have done him a power of good. <laughs> I'm quite interested in the in the art of a biography. What what's the if you want that good stuff, the 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 juicy stuff? Uh, how do you go about finding it? Is it uh, is it you know trying to get to them direct? Is it their rivals? Is it school friends? Is it school reports? As as Andrew was talking about, how do you where do you go when you're putting together a, a biography to to get the the, the good stuff? Uh, Anthony Selder, first of all. Oh, he's gone. Anthony's not there. Uh, what about Andrew? Well, oh, uh, Anthony, there he is. You, <laughs> I am here. I am here. And the, I mean, any biography is critically dependent, Matt, upon the sources. And those biographies we love of literary figures or great artists, figures in history, are nothing unless you've got top quality material that gets inside uh, the head of the person in a way that, is revealing. We're all fascinated by other human beings. We don't really want to know that they were head of a select committee and produced a particular report on a particular day. I mean, that is just terribly boring. But knowing what it, what is going on inside somebody's psyche, that's interesting. And part of the difficulty is that people don't have time to write diaries and they don't have time to write letters. And so you're much more reliant upon uh, people's oral testimony. Uh, that's and, interesting. You know, th that's a big fact of biographers today. Uh, Andrew Jimson, where did you find the good stuff? Well, I talked to a lot of uh, of people who've been at school in Oxford and uh, 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 with Boris Johnson. I talked to one very, very amusing man who said that uh, he, while he was at Eton with Boris, uh, people said, well, it's all very well to behave like this at Eton, but you won't be able to pay like, pay like that at Oxford. At Oxford, they said, all very well at Oxford. They won't be able to do this in London. Uh, and so on throughout his entire career. And, of course, people eventually said, you can't behave like that as Prime Minister. But he had, uh, it had got him a long way. And what about you, Francis? Where do you find the good stuff? I'm afraid it's just it's shoe leather for us. I mean, we just, uh, I remember there was a moment when uh, David Cameron's then press secretary, George Eustace, said, how many people have you spoken to? I said, oh, I think it's about, we're up to about 250 now. And <laughs> at, that point, <laughs> at that point, the non-access became slightly more access. Wow. And what about you, Linda? Because it's obviously slightly different if you're doing a biography of someone who's died and lots of the other people involved have died. So how did you find the good stuff? Uh, well, access was really problematic because Marcia Williams has two sons living... Uh, one a, a, a sort of senior figure in the city of London and the other uh, living in Stratford-on-Avon. And they will not, they don't want anything to do with talking about their mum. Now, that's a bit of a problem for a start. They Neither of them would have anything to do with me. Um, the one who works in the city of London has three daughters, young 
I think, university students who one wonders, you know, don't they want to know what their grandma got up to? But so I was in a very difficult situation because when it came to the private life of Marcia, I had to be incredibly I had to dig incredibly hard and I did find someone who was her best friend at school and I was able to talk to her sister-in-law uh who had been Joe Kagan's secretary uh so it was hard won every every <laughs> fact in that book was hard won because people although Marcia was dead people just wanted nothing to do with her and they didn't want to talk about it unless of course they were the stories that I retold when I interviewed people like Joe Haynes and Bernard Donahue, who were obviously the experts, and, and Bernard Donahue, uh, his diaries were a wonderful source of accurate information about what he perceived when he was working with her on a day-to-day yeah. basis. So I guess every biography is different. And uh, I, uh, I, whatever you would say about Marcia, she was neither dull nor boring, <laughs> nor a member of the Bullingdon Club. Absolutely, but, which uh, is why it made, uh, which is why it made for such a great read. Linda McDougall, great to speak to you. Author of Marcia Williams: The Life and Times of Baroness Falconer. Uh, we also have from Sir Anthony Selton, uh, who has written biographies of John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, and Boris Johnson. Andrew Jimson, who wrote two bio- volumes of biography of Boris Johnson: The Rise and Fall of a Troublemaker at Number Ten, and David and Francis Elliot. Biographer of David Cameron, uh, who with James Hanning wrote Cameron, practically a conservative. Now, let's find out whether the nation's booksellers are gripped by the prospect of another political backstory. Uh, joining me now is president of the Booksellers Association, owner of Village Books in Dulwich. Uh, she returns to the show, Hazel Broadfoot. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Good to have you uh, with us. Are you clearing the shelves to stock the backstory of Keir Starmer? No, in a word. And why is Um, that? Is that because political books don't sell? Is it particularly political biographies? What's the issue? Political books do sell. Um, There are two things. They have to be well written. Um, And I think it helps if the author has some kind of backstory or a hinterland um so if if i was looking at last year's political books uh the standout bestseller in independent bookshops was rory stewart's book politics on the edge and And the other night when we were at the uh the um parliamentary book awards you said that he'd sort of almost saved independent bookshops that that people that it really had made a difference the 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 enthusiasm i wouldn't say I wouldn't say it saved independent bookshops, but it was a book that worked very well for independent bookshops because he's he's kind of he's I know he was a conservative, but he's almost apolitical now, and his podcast is hugely popular, um, and he is hugely popular not not in the houses of commons, um, <laughs> but he's popular with the general public, and he can write. Um, I think. The Times and the Sunday Times don't always agree about things, but they both agreed that was a political book of the year. I know, um, I was, I was cruel, so, cruelly overlooking and, and that one, Hazel. To, to give you a, a, an idea of the scale, my bookshop is tiny, and I sold over 500 copies of that book. Wow. Um, David Cameron's book, um, which was a tome, it was 800 pages, I think we maybe sold three um, so it it really does depend on if the politician can write and if they've got um, something interesting to say. 
Um, Alan Johnson's book, This Boy, did very, very well when it was published, and it still sells. It, it, it's become standard stock for any bookshop in their politics section. Um, as do Chris Mullins' books. The, the, the View from the Foothills, I think, is essential reading for new MPs. It's really interesting. I suppose it's a bit of the sort of out, somebody who stepped outside the uh, the political circle, if you like. Uh, you know, the David Cameron one, clear, yeah, there was this sort of slight sense, well, Theresa May had replaced him. He probably wasn't going to, you know, blow up colleagues who were still in government and, and that sort of thing. Whereas a, a bit of distance from politics, uh, whether that's, you know, because you've moved politically in the case of Roy Stewart or just, you know, the passage of time, um, actually maybe maybe creates a bit of honesty, a bit of self-reflection, a bit of humour, a bit of behind the scenes. And they're all sort of ingredients that we're, we're bluntly not going to get necessarily from a book about Keir Starmer when he's on the, on the cusp of entering number 10. I agree. And a really good example of that is Chris Patton, who published last year his Hong Kong diaries. And, you know, that was quite a gap since he yeah. left Hong Kong. And that was a book which did very, very well. And, and you know, he's he's just, he's an interesting man. It's really fascinating. That. How's uh, how's planes, trains and toilet doors doing, Hazel? Well, it did very well for us. We, we I, I listened to your show and I like it. And it's a nice book to dip into. It was a very popular Christmas present. Fabulous. Not quite as popular as Rory Stewart. Yeah, all right. Stop coming about Rory Stewart, Hazel. He gets enough publicity. <laughs> Hazel, it's always lovely to speak to you. Uh, uh, glad it's all going down, going well at uh, Village Books. That's Hazel Broadfoot there from Village Books in Dulwich uh, and president of the Booksellers Association. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can get in touch. You can email me matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio or WhatsApp us on 033-003-2353. That's 033-003-2353. In fact, it'd be nice to hear from listeners from outside the UK if you're listening around the world. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.